Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So in the last episode, we covered the establishment of Lark Force and their ill-fated role in the fall of Rabaul. Now, with the Japanese army firmly established on the island of New Britain, the men of Lark Force have had no choice but to give up any further resistance and just do what they can to get out alive. But they're on an island. Rugged mountains, thick jungle and all sorts of tropical nasties stand in their way. Although some of the natives are friendly, some see these new Asian occupiers as liberators from the Europeans who have been running the island like their own personal kingdoms for many years. The odds of surviving are certainly not in the Australians' favour. But before we go too much further, don't forget to check out our website, australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com, for any maps and photos relevant to this episode, and check us out on Facebook and Instagram, and drop us a review on iTunes. And you can say good day via electronic mail at amhp.media at gmail.com. I've had a few of you wonderful people say good day since last time. Steve Ryan, who has provided a suggestion for someone I could include in an upcoming episode on Stretcher Bearers. Scott Pritchard, who doesn't mind a few dad jokes. And Guy Richardson, who will get a more detailed mention further along in this episode. Thanks for getting in touch, everyone. It really does help with the long, lonely, isolated existence of a podcaster to hear that people are tuning in and enjoying it. I exaggerate for effect, obviously. It's not that lonely. And speaking of people tuning in, since last episode, we hit a major milestone. We have finally passed 100,000 downloads. Now, I realise that other podcasts probably get that number 30 seconds after posting an episode and they would laugh with derision that it has taken over three years for this little podcast to get there. But to them, I flip the middle finger and feel a sense of accomplishment that a bloke talking into a microphone in a cabin in rural Queensland about a niche subject actually got that far. And of course, I owe it to all of you who tune in. Whether you wait with bated breath for the release of each new episode, or just pop in occasionally when the subject matter interests you, I would like to thank you all for your support. And now. Time to get on with cracking the 500,000 mark. A quick warning before we start though. This episode will be covering elements of brutality committed by the Japanese throughout this phase of the fighting, including the Toll Massacre. As usual, it's a fine line between providing enough detail to honour the memory of those who suffered and just throwing in gratuitous nasty stuff for the sake of throwing in gratuitous nasty stuff. Hopefully I'll stay on the right side of that line. And also, I apologise up front for the bombardment of names that are coming your way. As I'll state soonish, the retreating troops broke up into small groups and so to keep track of who's going where, we're just going to have to try and remember all the main players involved. So what was the situation immediately after Rabaul Harbour had fallen on the 23rd of January 1942? The majority of Lark Force had fallen back in something resembling good order through the battalion headquarters position at three ways. But that's pretty much where organised withdrawal came to an end. Brigadier Scanlon, overall commander of Lark Force, had told Lieutenant Colonel Carr of the 2nd 22nd Battalion 
and it was now every man for himself. Carr tried to stamp some order on the situation, but it was hopeless. His men had been routed, and, being poorly trained and equipped from the start, most men only had escape on their minds. To the southeast, another group under Major Travers had fought a good fight and had also fallen back in reasonable order on the 23rd of January. With the invaders nipping at the heels the whole way, Travers' men survived until nightfall, where they spent a tense night in a valley near the Toma Road. Realising that smaller groups will have better chance of evading the Japanese, the decision was made to split up in the morning and take different paths to freedom. Two main lines of retreat developed. One headed west towards the Karabat River and onto the north coast. The other to the southeast and the south coast. Both options included rugged mountains, swift-flowing rivers and jungle. There was food in those jungles, but unfortunately the men hadn't been trained to recognise it, and so basically all the food they had was what they could carry with them. As mentioned in the last episode, no contingency plan had been made in the event that Lark Force was required to fall back in the face of the Japanese invasion. And so when the troops received orders such as go bush or break up into small parties, they assumed the fighting was done. They left behind equipment, which may have made a more orderly retreat possible, such as communication equipment. And as no plan had been made, the men were left to choose for themselves which paths to use, or even a concrete location that they should head for. Some men were still in trucks at this stage, but they had to stick to the main roads, which meant they stuck out like dogs, you know, to the Japanese pilots, who harassed them at every opportunity. Lieutenant Shelby, Lark Force's anti-aircraft officer, described this early stage of his retreat. We walked at a brisk pace, only taking cover when diving planes roared down on us. Eventually, a truck dashed by, then pulled up in answer to our hail, and we climbed aboard. At frequent intervals, planes would dive on us, the machine guns blazing, and we would leap off the truck and take cover by the roadside. At Toma, we came to rear operational headquarters. I told the sergeant major there that I wished to report to the colonel. He went into the tent and returned, saying... The Colonel's orders are that each man is to fend for himself. Less than a mile farther on, the road petered out and the jungle began. A large portion of my battery was waiting for me by the roadside, but a number had gone on with various groups of infantry. Along the road was a string of abandoned vehicles, filled with rations, munitions and stores of all descriptions. The sight of the rations made me feel hungry and glancing at my watch I was surprised to see that it was just after midday. I could not leave that string of trucks to be picked up by the enemy intact and so we set to work demolishing the trucks but left the food in case more troops should be coming through. End quote. That gives a pretty good idea of the retreat. It's interesting that Selby mentions destroying the vehicles and leaving the food. He doesn't mention helping himself to the ammunition that was in the trucks. I don't know about you but if I was heading into the bush with enemy troops up my clacker I'd be taking all the ammunition and weapons I could carry. The fact that munitions were left behind gives a pretty good indication that at least as far as most of the men were concerned, they didn't plan to do any more fighting. When we last heard of Captain Appel, he had fought a rearguard action at Vanakanau, and by midday on the 23rd, he withdrew his troops in the direction of Karabat. Along the way, he met up with Captain McInnes. A couple of miles further on, in an area that had been selected for that night's bivouac, they came across about 160 other troops, mainly from McInnes's company. Another group, who had been defending Vulcan, to the north of Vanakanau, pulled back at about 7am heading towards Four Ways, but their progress was slow and by dusk on the 23rd, they had only gotten to within a mile of Four Ways. The next morning, their commander, Major Field, 
was advised by a native that Forways and Vanakanao had been taken by the Japanese. Field had no choice but to skirt around Fourways, keeping away from roads and tracks. It took the group four days to reach Caravat. Along the way, they picked up a few stragglers, ringing their number to 59. They decided to head to Caravat Farm, but were told by a local that the farm was now in Japanese hands. He was also advised that the Japanese were pushing towards Vidal River, which is where Field himself was planning on heading. His men were exhausted after having fought the initial invasion and then hacking their way through jungle for four days without food. Some were beginning to show the first signs of sickness. Field called his little group together and outlined the situation. He said that he had no intention of surrendering, but if anybody wished to surrender, they were free to do so. He gave them half an hour to decide. In all, only six others decided to forge on, the remainder stating that they would return to Caravat and surrender. Now you may well ask, why would they choose that option? given the way the Japanese treated their POWs. Well, you have to remember that at this stage, none of these men would have known about that. They would have chosen surrender, thinking they would be protected under the Geneva Convention and other such treaties. The poor buggers had no idea that the Japanese didn't give a tinker's curse about the Geneva Convention or the welfare of those who surrendered to them. As for Field and the other six who chose to keep going, between the seven of them, their rations consisted of one tin of bully beef two and a half biscuits, and a cucumber, of all things. No wonder the others felt surrender was an acceptable option. Travers, in the valley near Toma, had a similar dilemma to Field on the 24th. He had no idea what the situation was with the other elements of Lark Force. He advised any of his men who felt they would be unable to reach the coast on foot should surrender. As proof of just how unaware the Australians were of Japanese attitude towards prisoners, Travers and Lieutenant Donaldson set off towards Malabunga Junction with the intention of reaching an agreement with the Japanese. Fortunately, they found no enemy troops, and so returned to the waiting men. Travers advised those who were intent on escape should split up as they saw fit, and find their own way to the beaches. Most men went south, but separate parties under Tolma and Donaldson, about 20 men all up, headed for the north coast, and eventually met up with the main group around Caravat. On that northern coast, Captain Appel had been busy. He'd organised those troops he had into carrying parties, and by late afternoon on the 26th, he had reached Kamanakan Mission, a couple of miles inland from Vunalama. He had about 285 men of all ranks with him, and he could see they were in pretty poor condition, mainly mentally. They were demoralised at having been defeated so quickly and forced into retreat. Appel appealed to all of them to not allow themselves to be captured. He intended to establish camps up the hills where he would re-equip and retrain them all, and they would be able to strike back. This lifted their spirits somewhat. The thought of fighting back kind of made this a withdrawal, not a retreat. It may only be semantics, but such words are powerful. He divided his force into four groups and a headquarters. Captain McInnes would go to St Paul's, Captain McCallum to Gunter Show, Lieutenant Bateman to Larn, and Apple were command from Kamanakan. It was a good plan, but luck wasn't with them. The next day, Kamanakan was shelled by Japanese warships, and the day after, Japanese forces landed at Masava and Lussell Bay. McInnes had reached Lussell by the 29th, but saw Japanese landing craft coming ashore. Left with no other option, he withdrew his troops, advising them to break up into small parties to escape. He met up with Apple and advised that the Japanese were moving on Larn. Apple moved his company to a small village to the west of Larn, where they were able to shelter in native huts. A group of officers and NCOs met with Appel 
and advised surrender as the condition of the men was deteriorating due to lack of food, poor weather and the effort of moving through the jungle while trying to avoid the enemy. After a conference, Appel and McInnes took a small party and headed for Lussell Bay, ordering his men to follow in one hour's time. He had seen Japanese transports and destroyers leaving the harbour and hoped he would be able to find suitable accommodation for his men. But about two miles from Lussell, he took a wrong turn. He was concerned that this would mean his troops would get to Lussell before him. He later described what happened next. I forced two Kanakas to carry two packs and set off. Captain McInnes said he would accompany me from Guntersoe. The distance was seven miles. We ran every part of the way which was flat or downhill. Captain McInnes knocked up and I reached Harvey's plantation approximately 12 minutes after the troops. We stopped at Harvey's house, which is two miles from the beach, and Kanakas said the Japanese had left during the afternoon. End quote. Any digger, former or currently serving, will recognise this as a typical navigational skills of the officer class, which is why it's mostly the ORs and senior NCOs that lead the way. Just kidding. I imagine that one jungle track looks pretty much like any other one when you're in a rush. Somewhat relieved to find no Japanese along that part of the coast, Appel set about organising the logistics for his exhausted troops. He found food, set up standing patrols and sent out reconnaissance parties. Over the following days, McInnes's troops who had scattered had been found and brought back into the fold. Apple dispersed his force of 413 men along the 30-mile front along the northern coastline. McInnes and seven men had moved to Langanoa Plantation, where they remained until the 16th of February. On that day, they were joined by a Mr J McLean from nearby Rangararia Plantation. He had himself a little boat and was able to take McInnes's party off New Britain and took them to New Ireland, where they met Mr Kyle of the Coast Watchers. Kyle contacted Port Moresby and requested a flying boat to take them into Port Moresby, but none were available. They stayed on New Ireland until the 30th of April and managed to avoid two Japanese patrols before finally being evacuated in a larger vessel and reaching Port Moresby in May. Back on New Britain, on the 14th and 15th of February, Japanese forces landed at LaSalle and Gabbett, where they captured about 160 men without a fight. Appel decided to have a look at the situation and managed to get within 60 yards of where the Japanese were gathering the POWs. He later reported, My troops were smoking what must have been Japanese cigarettes and were guarded by Japanese with fixed bayonets. Our troops were unarmed, but their hands were not tied. At 18.15, the Japs marched the men down the beach, lit numerous small fires, and slept on the beach all night. I sent two of my men down to the beach, and they observed that our troops were given breakfast in the morning. After breakfast, the hands of our captive troops were tied behind their backs, they were put in a pinnace, and taken out to a transport. End quote. I've not been able to find any information of what became of those men at this stage. The Japanese began sending messages around the Australian positions, urging them to surrender. One such note read, To the officers and soldiers of this island, surrender at once, and we will guarantee your life, treating you as war prisoners. Those who resist us will be killed, one and all. Consider seriously, you can find neither food nor way of escape in this island, and you will only die of hunger unless you surrender. Japanese Commander-in-Chief, 23rd January 1942. End quote. So what would you do in that situation? Throw your hands up and say, Fair enough. Well, Appel covered around 100 miles in the next five days, riding, walking and swimming, to visit his scattered men and urging them to not surrender, which they did not. And by 21st of February, 
Something resembling hope arrived in the form of Mr McCarthy, Assistant District Officer at Tallassee. Mr McCarthy, it seemed, had an evacuation scheme. But who was Mr McCarthy? Well, John Keith McCarthy had been the District Officer at Rabaul prior to the invasion and had been involved in destroying the airfield at Cape Gloucester to deny its use to the Japanese. He then hightailed it to Tallassee to take up his other role. McCarthy was a coast watcher and he had in his possession the most important piece of equipment on the island, a teleradio. A big chunky bit of radio equipment which required a number of people to carry and manhandle across the country. He set up his radio about 90 miles west of the battle area, overlooking the Dampier Straits. He had assembled a group of about 30 civilians to help administer his base camp and was in place by the 28th of January. Upon his arrival, he was contacted by Commander Felt, the Naval Intelligence Officer at Port Moresby and nominal commander of the Coast Watcher Network. Felt ordered him to take his wireless to Toma, where he could report on the situation of Scanlon's force, of which no information had been received since the invasion. And so began McCarthy's war, one which will see him eventually become a lieutenant colonel. But as this episode is about the fate of Lark Force, and I will be doing an episode or two on the Coast Watchers, I'll just fast forward to the point where he meets up with Appel. The two men met up on the 22nd of February on the Yusavit River and McCarthy outlined his plan. Appel agreed that he would bring at least 145 of his men to Pondo within seven days. Appel returned to his troops and outlined the plan. Most were up for it, but some didn't want to. And it's probably fair enough. They'd been battered out of a ball, hacked their way through the bush to their current refuge, scratched a meagre living from the surrounding area. They were buggered and the plan involved moving again which would require effort, which they obviously felt was beyond them. But McCarthy had ordered Appel to advise that anyone who chose surrender would later be charged and court-martialed for desertion to the enemy, which I think, under the circumstances, was a bit harsh. But it had the desired effect. Apart from eight sick and wounded men, left under the care of Major Ackroyd at the St Paul's Hospital, Appel's scattered troops began to make their way towards Pondo. In all, about 200 men arrived by the deadline more than McCarthy had bargained for. His one ship, the Aussie, would never be able to carry all the men and so he ordered a small schooner, the Malahuka, which had been damaged by the Japanese to be repaired post-haste. Even so, it took five days to get the little tub seaworthy. The first stage of the trip was to get the men off New Britain and onto Lolabao Island, a mile or so off the north coast. The poor old Malahuka broke down after one trip. But, like an unstoppable force, McCarthy kept the men moving west. At Willindy, he met up with the patrol officer Harris, who had a flotilla of schooners, and soon the evacuation stepped up a pace. On 9th of March, another 23 men were picked up, including Lieutenant Colonel Carr, OC of the 2nd 22nd Battalion. In stages, sometimes on boats, sometimes on foot across islands, the convoy made their way to the east coast of Papua, and from there, aboard the Larabada, they finally headed south, arriving in Cairns on the 28th of March. Felt met them at Cairns and recorded. Of all on board, six only were fit men. The rest were sick, debilitated by poor and insufficient food, weakened by malaria and exposure. Most had sores, the beginnings of tropical ulcers, covered by dirty bandages. Their faces were dirty grey, which betokens malaria. Their clothes were in rags and stank of stale sweat. They were wrecks. But they were safe, and some would fight again. End quote. The truly sad part about this is that these men were the lucky ones. As sick, exhausted and battered as they were, 
a much worse struggle awaited other elements of Lark Force. These men had chosen the northern route of escape, and as luck would have it, it was the right choice. For those going south, the going would be tough, but I'm guessing the theory was that the Japanese were in the northeast, so the best chance of escaping would be to head southwest. Of those who chose to head south, many would not be heard of again, and those who did manage to escape underwent an ordeal that leaves you wondering just how tough these blokes really were. There were two main routes south from the Malabunga and Toma railheads, to either Lemingi at the base of the Bainings Range, or Putput Harbour on the east coast of the peninsula. From Lemoningi and Putput Harbour, the tracks led to Alder Bay and then into Wide Bay. The tracks were ill-defined, usually nothing more than a bit of a scuff in the undergrowth. After giving Lieutenant Colonel Carr his orders to withdraw, Colonel Scanlon, the top dog of this whole force, waited at Toma Vatua for about an hour, tossing up whether to surrender or to make his attempt to reach the south coast. So much for the man who ordered his men to fight to the last, way back in the halcyon days of his arrival in Rabor. Eventually he decided he'd have a crack at making it to the south coast and along with five others set off towards Lemingi. Other men who had arrived at Malabunga during the afternoon of the 23rd of January were advised to take three days rations from the abandoned stores and push on five miles to the police barracks. About 200 took this advice and about half of them decided to stay at the barracks overnight while the remainder tried to reach Lemingi. One of the soldiers described that trek. We walked along in line in pitch dark. Each had his hand on the man in front. If a man in front came to a log, he'd say, log, and the word would go back along the line. I was the 20th in line at the beginning, and by midnight I was the last and dropped off. I pulled a ground sheet over me and slept in the rain. Next morning I followed the track and came up with the others in a village about 1700. End quote. The advance parties began to arrive at Lemingi by the 25th, and on the following day it was estimated that about 300 had arrived. Father Mohoffer, the missionary at Lemingi, gave the men tea and rice, and the men slept in a nearby native village. From the 26th, gruesome men began to leave Lemingi. Shortly after leaving the village, the track dropped 2,000 feet to the fast-flowing river at the bottom. Most of the men slid down the track, and after wading across the 30-yard-wide river, they pulled themselves out the other side. Throughout the day, the men became strung out along the track. They were so exhausted that they needed to stop every 100 yards or so just to rest. At every village they entered, the natives dispersed and the starving troops helped themselves to taro roots and whatever other food they could find. But it was never enough and their condition continued to deteriorate. Our hands, never dry, were cut and torn. It was painful to close them to grip the rough vines and our bodies were bruised and stiff from innumerable falls, was how one man described himself. By 4pm on the 27th, the advance party was close to the Adler Bay where they heard the sounds of gunfire. Lieutenant Best and Private Ross went forward to investigate and saw that the civilian population had raised the white flag and wished to surrender. Upon hearing this, Captain Nichols, in charge of the advance party, went forward and met with Colonel Field of the New Guinea Volunteer Rifles, who advised them that it was pointless going on and that they should surrender. Nichols pulled down the white flag. It would appear, battered and bruised as they were, they still had fight in them. Imagine how differently things might have worked out if these men had been given proper equipment, training and leadership. They certainly had the ticker. During the 28th and the 29th, men continued to arrive at Adler Bay. A dressing station had been set up by the 2nd 10th Field Ambulance. Remember them from last episode? They'd headed south as soon as it was obvious that Rabor wasn't going to hold. The nurses had been dropped off at Vanapopi Mission 
and the remainder made their way to Adler Bay. By the time the withdrawing troops arrived, the hospital was able to provide food, quinine, and most importantly, huts to sleep in out of the rain. These blokes are good for now. As the headquarters group headed south from Malabunga, and on their way to Lemingi, they came across a naval commander, Lieutenant Mackenzie, and some ratings. They were in possession of a radio, but Mackenzie was ordered to destroy it lest it should fall into Japanese hands. It was a fair call, but it left this group without any contact with the outside world. Mackenzie and his men joined the move south. This group, now totalling around 21, including Carr, stopped at a village about 15 miles south of Malabunga and stayed there for a week. Patrols were sent out to report back on Japanese activities and Carr learned that the enemy had not penetrated much further than the Karabat River to the west. On 1st of February, Carr's group fell back and visited Father Mayhofer, who advised that by that stage up to 400 men had passed through his mission, including Colonel Scanlon. At this point, the official history gets a bit confusing in relation to Carr. Remember earlier, I said that he had been taken off New Britain along with Appel's men. Well, at this point, the history implies that the group which Carr was a part of at Lemingi headed to Adler Bay, which is on the south coast, but Carr was picked up on the north coast. I can only surmise that as the main headquarters party headed south, Carr remained in the north. Anyway, it appears that battalion headquarters was now on the end of the long trail of men heading to Adler Bay. The other group heading south came down from Putput Harbour. Major Owen had pulled his men out of the Vulcan position on the 23rd of January. On the 24th, he met up with Lomas and Lieutenant Dawson, who advised Owen that the order had been given for everyone to fend for themselves. Owen took command of this group, which numbered about 36, and they were soon heading south. They reached Rallabang Plantation, where they scrounged Amiga feed. They reached Putput Harbour on the 28th and then turned south, arriving at Adler Bay on the 31st, where they joined the troops already there. So now we come to the nasty stuff. Because, you know, up to now it's all been rainbows and kittens, hasn't it? The route from Adler Bay to Wide Bay was along the coast, and the men had to travel through mangrove swamps and coral rocks, hardly an improvement to the jungle. They slept in abandoned native villages, attacked by battalions of mosquitoes, and with very little food to be found. But by midday on the 31st, the advance party reached Wide Bay, where they met four Air Force men who had rowed ashore in a dinghy. Shortly afterwards, the men located Toll Plantation and learned that it had already been visited by the Japanese who had shot the cattle and taken away the pigs and sheep. Fortunately, they had left the homestead pretty much untouched. The Australians managed to capture and kill a feral pig, and while it was roasting, they used the homestead's linen to fashion themselves some laplaps and to have a bath and a shave. Sitting down to roast pork later that evening, they must have felt well satisfied. And as luck would have it, after the last episode was posted, I was contacted by Guy Richardson, who I mentioned at the start. Turns out Guy is the great-nephew of Les Fawcett, a member of the 2nd 10th Field Ambulance, and it was Les who managed to kill the above-mentioned pig. I love it when people drop me a message with their personal links to these events. It goes to show that these things didn't happen in the long-distant past. They were only a generation or so ago, and there are people alive today who heard these stories from those who were there. Thanks for that one, Guy. By 1st of February, the number at Toll had grown to around 200. But their morale was just about done. Many sat around small fires, and when they were told to extinguish them, they ignored the order. As one man put it, they just didn't care anymore. That morning, a Japanese plane flew over the area, and the leaders warned the troops to leave the area as a sign of occupation would likely draw the Japanese forces onto them. Many left and continued the westward move in small groups. 
One group of 15, which left the following morning, met up with five engineers at the mouth of the Henry Reed River and together they pushed on to Calai Mission. That same day, Major Arwan set out from Adler Bay to head towards Toll. He had been advised that there was food there and set off to properly organise its distribution among the troops following behind him. He passed about 150 troops heading the same direction and found another 100 at the plantation. He was told that food was scarce, but there was plenty at Calais Mission. So early next morning, Owen pushed on. At about 7am, his group saw five Japanese landing craft heading towards Toll. After a short barrage, the Japanese came ashore. There were about 70 men at the plantation when the enemy hit the beach and 22 elected to surrender. Waving a white flag, they met the Japanese and were taken prisoner. The others attempted to escape into the bush, but the Japanese systematically searched the area and most of the men were captured and brought to the concentration point at the toll workers' quarters. They were fed at midday and in the evening and then they were locked in the native huts overnight. The next morning, the men were assembled outside the hut and then marched to Toll Plantation House. The two officers who had led the surrender party were separated and a piece of cloth with Japanese characters written was attached to each officer. The Japanese then separated those men who had comprised the surrender party, which amounted to about 20 men. These men were taken away. Of the remaining men, they were lined up in groups of four and had their names, ranks and service numbers recorded. Photos, paybooks and any personal items were collected into a pile and the men had their hands tied behind their backs and linked together in groups of nine or ten. And then they were given time to sit and rest a while and the Japanese gave them water and cigarettes although how they smoked them with their hands behind their backs, the official history doesn't record. Then, with three Japanese troops leading the way, and other enemy troops marching between the two groups, carrying bayonets and, ominously, shovels, the two groups were led away. When the track slid into two, the groups separated. At the latter inquest, one soldier stated, I decided this was a shooting party, and if one were to be shot, one might as well be shot trying to escape, as be done in, in cold blood. I was fortunate in that the line I was in happened to not be roped together and that I was number two in line. I nipped out of the line and ducked down behind a bush on the bend of an S. The chap next to me called Lower Sport and I accordingly crouched further into the scrub. End quote. Private Collins was a survivor from another party. All in his group were linked with cords and when the party reached a spot within the plantation, an officer drew his sword and cut the rope between the first man and the second and ordered the first man to head into the bush. A soldier followed with a fixed bayonet. Collins was the last man in line, and he soon heard a man cry out, and shortly after, the Japanese soldier returned, wiping his bayonet. One by one, the men were led into the bush. One man tried to make a run for it, but the officer hit him with his sword, and then shot the man. Robert Glissold, of the 2nd 10th Ambulance, was wearing a Red Cross brassard, which should have afforded him some protection but it was ripped off and Glissold asked if he could be shot rather than bayoneted. The officer obliged. Finally, only Collins was left. The officer took up a rifle and motioned for Collins to walk, and after a few paces, the officer fired and hit Collins in the shoulder, knocking him to the ground. The officer fired again and hit Collins in the wrist and back, and the Japanese then departed. No doubt surprised to find himself still alive, Collins realised that the second shot had cut the cords binding his wrists. He managed to stand up and walked away from the area, passing about six of his mates lying dead on the ground. Another survivor was Lance Corporal Marshall. His group had been dealt with in much the same way as Collins, except Marshall had been bayoneted three times, 
As he lay there, feigning death, he heard rifle shots. He realised that the Japanese were shooting anyone that moved, and so he stayed as still as he could. After the Japanese left, he wandered through the bush for a few days and was fortunate enough to be found by another group of Australians, including Lieutenants Lomas and Dawson. Dawson wrote about finding Marshall. Marshall attempted to run away. He was delirious, walking along with an empty tin in one hand, the other tucked in his shirt front, which was full of blood. He had used the tin for drinking river water. We caught him and learned the story of the massacre of Toll. End quote. Unfortunately, that was not the last of the killing. Gunner Hazelgrove, with six others, stumbled into Toll Plantation sometime after the first wave of killings, unaware that it was in Japanese hands. They were quickly taken prisoner, and an interpreter who Hazelgrove spoke to said they liked Australians and that they could put their hands down. Their personal items were taken, and like the others, they were roped together and taken into the bush. After about half a mile, their captors opened fire. Hazelgrove was hit in the back, but he remained still while the Japanese threw palm leaves over him and his dead comrades. He managed to free his wrists, and two days later, he was picked up by Lieutenant Selby and taken care of. Probably the luckiest survivor was Private Cook of the 2nd 10th Field Ambulance. His party of eight had been heading towards Toll, unaware that this was in Japanese hands. When they stopped along the track to cook some food, they were surprised by the Japanese. They were taken away in groups of three. Cook told the court of inquiry, they then stabbed us with their bayonets. The first blow knocked the three of us to the ground. They stood above us and stabbed us several more times. I received five stabs. I pretended death and held my breath. The Japanese then walked away. The soldier who was lying beside me groaned. One Japanese came back and stabbed him again. I could not hold my breath any longer, and when I breathed out, he heard it and stabbed me another six times. The last thrust went through my ear, face and into my mouth, severing an artery which caused the blood to gush out of my mouth. I lay there and heard the last two men being shot. End quote. Somehow after an hour, he managed to get to his feet and headed towards the beach. He walked in the water so that he wouldn't leave a blood trail, and as evening drew in, he noticed a glow from a fire off in the distance. It took him until the next morning to reach it, and there he found a small party which included Brigadier Scanlon, who dressed Cook's wounds. Guy informs me that after the war, Cook went to work with the railways, where he would eventually lose both legs in a shunting accident. Anyway, I won't relate any more of the tales, as they're all fairly similar. I think you get the idea. The Court of Inquiry, held in May 1942, stated in its conclusion there were at least four separate massacres of prisoners on the morning of the 4th of February, the first of about 100, the second of six, the third of 24, and the fourth of about 11. These figures are approximate. End quote. From this, you can say that upwards of 140 Australian POWs were massacred at Toll. If the handful of survivors had not managed to find their way back into Australian hands, the full extent of the crime may never have been known. You have to admire the strength of character of those men to keep going with such terrible injuries and not giving up when it would no doubt have been the easiest thing to do. So let's move on. The Westwood movement continued for those not yet captured. Scanlon and his group, which now included Cook and another survivor of the massacre, Webster, moved through Toll and avoided capture. On the evening of the 8th of February, they reached Kalai Mission and met up with troops under Major Owen. One of the mission's priests advised Scanlon that there was no plan for evacuation and that if they continued to head west, they would run out of food before reaching the next semblance of civilisation. 
Fair to say, by this stage, Scanlan was done. His force had been driven out of Rabor, a number of his men had been massacred, and those who remained were in poor condition. He had received a message from the Japanese urging him to surrender and beg for mercy for his troops. Scanlan had Major Mollard gather the troops and advised them that he was going to return to Rabor and surrender. Lieutenant Selby wrote that, Through its sheer hard logic, it depressed me more than anything which had happened on the track. Scanlan and Mollard left Calais on the 10th. Major Owen took over command of the troops, left at Calais, and the next day they continued their westward trek. In all, there were about 23 men left, including the medical officer, Major Palmer, and three of the survivors from the Toll Massacre, Hazelgrove, Marshall and Webster. Along the track, on the 17th, they met up with Cook after his escape from the massacre. They eventually met up with more escapees and Father Best at Malmel Mission. He is the same bloke who had provided the pinnace that helped the other party to escape. He informed them that the Japanese had taken control of Gasmata. This basically put an end to any thoughts of escaping to the west. Owen ordered two camps to be set up at Wanung and Drina, and as it seemed they would be there for a long time, he ordered the men to plant vegetables. This was about the only thing he could do to keep them busy and keep their minds of just how dire this situation was. Sickness soon set in with a vengeance. Major Palmer wrote, 100% of the men have been inflicted with malaria and have had at least one recurrence. 90% have had two or more recurrences. 10% have daily rigours and sweating at night. 33% only are able to do any sort of work. At least 15% of men are suffering from such a degree of secondary anaemia and bilitity following attacks of malaria, diarrhoea and the privations of the journey, and lack of food, that it will not be possible to keep them alive more than a few weeks. End quote. So in layman's terms, they were just about buggered with little hope of surviving if something wasn't done to get them out as soon as possible. But from their perspective at the time, there didn't seem to be anything that could be done. You couldn't have blamed them for just resigning themselves to their fate. But Owen decided he wouldn't just give up. He sent out patrols of the strongest men, and on the 5th of April, one such patrol returned with stores and various other things they could use for trading with the natives. But even better news arrived on that day. Owen had been ordered to concentrate his men at Wanang. They were to be evacuated. It turns out that as Scanlan and Mollard were heading back to Rabaul to surrender, they came across another couple of Lark Force refugees who were building a dinghy. Through a series of messages passed on from those men onto other men, and then onto others, a rescue mission was organised. Owen had to move those of his men who were at Druna, and they had to be at Wanang that night. It was one last nightmare march for those men. As done in as they were, they set off, with some of the stronger men supporting their mates or carrying stretchers. They pushed as hard as they could, not wanting to arrive late and be left behind. It was after midnight when they staggered into Wanung, only to be told that the evacuation would take place on the following night. They could have taken it a bit easier on themselves, it would seem. And then, just to rub a bit of salt into the wound, only one vessel had shown up by that stage and it wasn't until the 9th of April that 150 soldiers and civilians were taken off New Britain on the Larabada. They reached Port Moresby on the 12th, and from there sailed on to Townsville. Those were the main evacuations, but there were other smaller-scale escapes, but I won't bore you with the details of all those. Just be advised that those men suffered much the same privations as the ones I've mentioned. But I will regale you with the tale of one more evacuation simply because it illustrates why I love history so much more than anything Hollywood can dream up. 
It relates to the extraction of Keith McCarthy, Assistant District Officer at Tallahassee, and a group of men who attached themselves to McCarthy when Rabaul fell. Now their story is pretty much like everybody else's as it relates to making their way through the difficult terrain, running out of food, and eventually finding themselves on the coast absolutely knackered and nearly without hope. McCarthy and his group were sitting at a plantation in Iboki, contemplating the likelihood of either slow, painful death from hunger and disease, or capture by the Japanese. While pondering these options, McCarthy looked along the beach and the sight which greeted him must have made him wonder if delirium had already begun to set in. It was probably only the fact that those men around seemed to be seeing the same vision that made him think that maybe it was real. Down there, coming up the beach, was a tall, elegant, middle-aged woman immaculately dressed in a white blouse and pressed trousers. Gladys Henrietta Loveday Baker casually walked up to McCarthy, introduced herself, and advised McCarthy that the Lakatoi was anchored nearby. It was fully seaworthy and just waiting for McCarthy to acquire it. And by acquire, she meant steal it. McCarthy organised a party to go forth and do this very thing. It turned out that the captain, Farrah, and first mate of the Lakatoi were only too happy to hand the ship over. They had been trying to keep it out of Japanese hands for weeks and were relieved to have that responsibility taken away from them. Meanwhile, Gladys Baker, who had been a nurse in World War I, set to fixing up those broken men as best as she could. She spent the week treating ulcers, advising which native foods were good to eat and organised for stores to be brought over from her plantation. She even organised card games to keep the men's minds off their agonies and it turned out she was a dab hand at the cards, winning more often than she lost. When all was ready, the men were ferried to the Lakatoi, but it was discovered that with the ship's hold full of copra, there wasn't enough room for all the men. McCarthy ordered Captain Farrah to dump the cargo overboard. Farrah advised that the cargo was worth thousands of pounds and asked who would pay for it. McCarthy told Farrah to put it on his account. I imagine McCarthy was probably not in the mood for arguing over something as insignificant as money after all he and his men had been through. Five hours later, the Lakatoi was ready to sail. Most men thought they would sail directly to New Guinea and then trek to Port Moresby as they had been ordered. But McCarthy thought, bugger that. He was taking them all to Cairns, explaining that Port Moresby was 1,200 miles away through waters largely held by Japanese. Cairns was further away, but only about 400 of those miles were through Japanese waters, although it did also include dangerous reefs and shoals. How will we navigate through all of that? The men asked. McCarthy nodded towards none other than Gladys Baker. She'd get them through. And so, on the 21st of March, McCarthy and Baker signalled Port Moresby to advise they were leaving and so began the long and dangerous journey. I'll be doing a bonus episode in the near future to give a full account of Gladys Baker's life and the voyage of the Lakatoi, so I won't go into it here. But suffice to say that on the 28th of March, the Lakatoi entered Cairns Harbour. The men on board must have looked in frightfully awful condition. An officer who met them at the gangplank asked McCarthy where they were from. One soldier advised, Victoria Barracks, Melbourne. The men were formed up into three ranks and marched through the main street of Cairns to the stairs of bewildered onlookers. Seeing a cafe open, Mick Smith, a junior officer, ordered his men inside and they were handed menus by the shop owner. As for McCarthy, the commander of the Coast Watchers stated, As the ships touched the wharf, McCarthy, who had carried the burden for so long, drooped and wilted in complete mental and nervous exhaustion. 
With never a quip or a joke, he found nothing now of interest or value. Ashore, he sat at a table, a dead cigarette between his lips, an untasted beer before him, and answered questions in grunts and monosyllables. End quote. Obviously, McCarthy had given every ounce of strength he had in him to deliver these abandoned men to safety. Amazingly, he recovered in a few short months and would end up commanding Z-Force units behind enemy lines in New Britain. Gladys Baker spent the rest of the war assisting Allied intelligence and then joined the Australian Army Women's Medical Service. She even asked to be trained as a commando, but that was a bit too much of a stretch for the male-dominated military mind at the time. One officer stated, It will be a sad day for the British Empire when the Army has to fight with women. In truth, I'd lay money that she would have made a better soldier than that officer. Anywho, on the day of the invasion, the strength of Lark Force was 1,396 men. Only slightly over 400 managed to escape. About 800 became prisoners of the Japanese. A large number of these men were among the 849 POWs lost with the sinking of the Montevideo Maru on the 22nd of June. Lark Force had no chance from the start. Failure by senior commanders and politicians to recognise the threat posed by Japan led to Lark Force being woefully unprepared and under-equipped. The absence of any contingency planning, should the garrison be forced to withdraw, condemned the troops to weeks of suffering in the New Britain jungle, with hunger and disease claiming some, while Japanese brutality claimed others. A court of inquiry was held into the events at Rabaul, but as is usual with these things, those right at the top of the decision-making process never really got held to account. The report was filed away, pretty much stating that it was just one of those things that happens in war. Some recommendations were made to avoid similar incidents in the future, but in the grand scheme of things, it was just one small failure in a much larger war. But for the men who suffered, it probably felt a lot more than that. Fawcett, Fawcett, 